Today our, our sermon, as you see in your sermon notes there, is called Arise, Raised to Life. And we're going to do a Bible study through all of Acts 9. We're going to be seeing lots of different characters, lots of different stories, all around this theme of Arise and being moved into new life. Really excited to study the word with you here in the moments ahead. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for the gift of scripture and this, the gift of coming together as men and women in different states of being, and yet, Lord, we gather today to be informed by your word. And so now we pray, Lord, that you would do what you do, and that's open our, our minds, open our ears, open our eyes, and mostly, Lord, open our heart to learning more about what this, this arising, this, this new life that you have for us as believers. Lord, make this old story new again. In your great name we pray. Amen. Um, if you've been coming for a while, you probably different times have told you more about my faith story. I was raised in a Christian home, but I was a non-Christian kid, uh, mostly because I really struggled with the difference between religion and faith. I saw a lot of religion, and I saw people going through religious steps, but I didn't feel like I saw a lot of faith. And during my differentiation years, during my high school years, I really differentiated and really kind of pulled away from the faith of my family to the point where I said, actually, and I would kind of journal from time to time, I was kind of this restless youth that looked on the outside like things were fine, but on the inside, I had a really restless heart. So through my high school years, came to a place where I would said, actually, God, I'm not sure I even believe in you. Luckily, I had an older person that believed in me, a young life leader who walked with me. And fast forwarding a bit, in the summer before my senior year, cut off my finger, uh, cleaning a salmon, different sermon, different day. Uh, and through um, that misfortune, was allowed to go to young life camp. Now, for the last couple of years, I'd really wrestled and, like I said, came to a place of disbelief in God. And uh, luckily for that week, uh, uh, for me, that week in Northern California in early August of 1992, I heard the gospel preached, the gospel of new life, of arising, and of people being changed, and not about religion or us needing to act certain ways, but about the power of Christ. And I'm like, man, I, I, I want that. And you know, during that week, I kind of kept praying and wrestling, praying and wrestling, and, and late in the week, I came to a place of just opening my heart up. I realized that I'd been trying to manufacture the way that I wanted God to respond to me, and that week at Young Life Camp was the first time I truly just opened myself up to the gospel. God, my heart is open. I'm wide open. If you want to make yourself at home in me, I want to follow you. And it happened, you guys. It happened. The Spirit descended upon me. I felt the life change. A couple of years of wrestling and kind of trying to figure God out, it ended. And later that night, I went outside. Same journal. I'd been recording some of the spiritual struggle and and I wrote these three words down out sitting in the field in this Northern California evening. I, I wrote these three words, which are echoing Christ on Good Friday, but I wrote, it is finished. Because when, when Christ calls us to new life and new change and real belief, it means that the old life passes away. And the things that I've been holding on to and the things that I've been wrestling with, that there's this transforming narrative in my life. And so when I wrote those words down, I didn't even know what they meant, 17 years old. And I can look back now and say that, yes, the old life passed away, but there were still struggles. There were still times of loneliness and times where God felt far, the times where God felt close. But in my heart, I knew that I had come to saving faith in Christ. I was ready to, to move beyond the struggles that I had wrestled with before and come to this new life. 
Today, as we study Acts 9, I really hope you brought your Bible or you have your phone open because we're going to look at almost the entirety of the whole chapter. And there's all these different characters, all experiencing new life. And to get lexical with you, the Greek word that's actually used throughout chapter 9 is a word called anastomy. Interesting note, today is the Orthodox Greek Easter. And today, uh, in the Orthodox Church around the world, they would say Christus anistus, Christ is risen. That same root, anastomy, means raised up, and it's used with Paul, and it's used with Ananias, and it's used with Peter, and it's used with Aeneas, and it's later used with Tabitha. All these characters being called to anastomy, to get up, to raise up, to experience new life. And often with these characters, it means physical movement, like get up. Christ would use the same word anastomy when calling disciples. Anastomy, follow me, and they would anastomy, they would get up and follow Christ. And so as God's people, people of the new narrative, people of the new life in Christ, we are called to be arising to be moving, to be changing, to be anastomy, to be uh, incorporating this raised to life narrative in, in our lives. And so the big idea of today's message is this, that the gospel message of Christ that we're going to see really clearly in Acts 9 is the power of Christ to rise in us, changing us, and then our lives and our lifestyle will be used as testimony and witness to the world at large. We are called to get up and make our bed, and somehow a made bed will testify to the power of God. So let's begin here with looking at these characters of Paul and Ananias in the first nine verses. And my challenge for you throughout the Acts series, the, the sermon, or the series title rather, is Time to Move. It's really easy to read Acts merely historical, and the encouragement for you all this morning is to not just be reading as history, but a little bit of your own story. A little bit of like finding yourself, what is God trying to say to you this morning? And between all these different characters, my hope is as you leave, you would resonate with one of them. Man, that's like me right now, and that you would hear from the Lord this morning. So let's look at the first nine verses of chapter nine. Now Saul, this is pre-conversion to Paul. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus in modern-day Syria, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We can pause there. Now Saul was a Pharisee, he was a religious man, but his pursuit of religion had led him actually to kill Stephen in, in Acts 6 and 7. Stephen is put to death uh, by stone. Uh, this man, Stephen, was actually killed with a bunch of religious people standing around throwing stones at him. And, and Paul, like this is, he's still breathing threats there in verse 1. He's, he's fired up about it. He's religiously zealous. He's trying to like do the religion the way that he was raised. And this is now taking him into new places of murder. And we can read this like, man, what an, what an evil person. The reality is that all, all of us, we all struggle with violence in our own hearts at times. So continue on verse 3. As Paul was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to, to find Christians to bring back to Jerusalem to kill or to persecute. As he was traveling, it happened he was approaching Damascus. He was right at the edge of the city. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if your Bible does red letter version, this is the words of Christ. These are red letters. And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But get up, Anastomy, get up, be raised to new life. 
and enter the city and be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. It's amazing here for Paul. He, he travels 135 miles from modern-day Jerusalem to modern-day Syria where Damascus was. 135 miles by animal would be about a three-day trip. And, and he gets to the edge of the city, and he's blinded. And this isn't metaphorical. He's literally laid blind for the next three days. And, and then God tells him to, that he's, though blinded, he's meant to go into the city. And they, they brought him, the men dro- brought him into the city. And I just found that really fascinating. If you think about, like, for most of us in the room, we, we don't struggle with eyesight, but you think about, you know, approaching downtown Seattle without eyesight, the, the sounds, the, 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 the smells, the, the, the traffic, modern-day Damascus, or in that day, Damascus would be a large city, a big trading town. And think about Saul, and, and he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know why Jesus is coming after him, and he's, he's heading into the city blinded. I find that really interesting because Saul has begun his transformation, but it looks like blindness. And how often do we begin wanting to change? My marriage needs to get healthy. I'm going to leave these destructive habits. I'm going to embrace change with my family of origin, my vocation. I want to, to, to testify my belief in Christ in the, in the real workplace. But you know, I'm, I'm trying to make these, these changes in my life, but it feels like I'm going blind. And so often with God's people, he calls us blindly to enter into new places. He doesn't give us any maps. This is the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12. Go to the land, I will show you. Paul, walk into Damascus blindly. Our transformation begins more times than not, not with a clear picture of how it ends, but a call to follow Christ. And in, in no matter how struggle or how difficult that is, we're called to keep walking blindly into the decisions that God is calling us to make. Not blindly because we're not following him, but blind because we just don't know what God is doing in this present situation. And so he says, go into the city, though you're blind, I'm not done with you yet. Verse 10 through 17, we get a new character, Ananias. And again, the hope is this morning that you resonate with one of these characters. Some of you are like, man, I'm Saul. I feel just really blind to what God's doing, but I, I want to hear these red letters in my life. I want to experience the call of Christ. And then we have this character of Ananias. He's a disciple. This is verses 10 through 17. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, get up and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. We can pause there. There's so many, so many interesting pieces of text in here. Saul, uh, blind, fearful, now in a city that he doesn't know hardly anyone and waiting for what God's going to show him to do. What is he doing while he waits? He is praying. And while we're waiting to regain sight or to figure out what God's doing in this relationship or with my work or with my family, God, I just want to see what you're doing. It's all really unclear right now. God calls us to be people of prayer. Man, drives me bananas sometimes. People say, you know, I I really want to get to a place of being able to pray with my kids even once a month. I just say, you know what? We should be praying every day with our roommates or by ourselves 
Not trying to earn any brownie points with our cosmic maker, but so that we are aligned with God. So he's praying while he waits. And then Ananias, Jesus continues talking to him, verse 12, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We're not even going to go there today. Another whole sermon can be about verse 16 and how discipleship and suffering often look hand in hand. For some of you in the room that are suffering right now, emotionally or physically, you may resonate here. That some of following Christ has turned out differently than you've expected. And truly, there is suffering in the world. God says this really interesting thing. He loves Saul. He says, I will show him how much he suffered for my name's sake. Verse 17, so Ananias departed, entered the house, laid hands in him. And then he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. I love that, that though Ananias is very fearful, this is a story of courage. Because, you know, it's like God asking us to house an ISIS warrior or something. For Ananias to follow God here, for God to say, go and do this thing, he's pretty sure it's going to mean his own harm, his own struggle, his own lack of safety. And this go, which again, we talked about go in chapter one of Acts, like as God's people, though we love to kind of you know, post up and, you know, build a nice garden and just kind of get comfortable. The reality is God's people, that for many of us, he is calling us into new places, new relationships, new jobs. The gospel is always pushing out. Again, not restlessly, not trying to earn some sort of favor, but so that the nations will know. And so Ananias is a disciple here in Damascus called to go with courage to build a relationship with Paul. And that's that's really difficult and encouraging at the same time. And notice that Ananias, in his call from Christ to do this really difficult thing, to go and to connect with Saul, he gets to experience Jesus too. Like That's really hopeful for me. That Jesus here in Acts, Jesus doesn't have a lot of speaking parts, but Ananias gets to hear from the Lord himself. And the point is, is God's people, if you really kind of resonate with Ananias this morning, you're like, well, you know, I'm a disciple, I'm following God, I'm not, you know, I'm kind of, a, you know, anastomy, I'm kind of rising to new life. God might be calling you to be an agent of change, to be praying for somebody in your family, to be speaking the truth of the gospel in a really relational way, and to do it with great courage, and know as you go that you will experience intimacy with Christ. Because Christ calls the people he loves to do hard things. So if you feel like, man, God's calling me to do this really hard thing, this really hard thing with fill in the blank, just know that's an encouragement. Because that means God trusts you. It means he loves you. It means he knows you caught this. Not from your own strength, but his strength in you. Well, some of you in this morning, I got some Ananias in me right now. Well, just be encouraged. Because God's going to do good things with your life. You don't need to be stronger. You don't need to do anything crazy. You just need to be obedient to his call on your life. And then Ananias calls Saul brother. That is so good and so powerful because Saul is a murderer. He's a Pharisee. 
For all Ananias knows, Saul hasn't even converted yet. He doesn't know. But he goes in and says, brother. And he lays hands on him. And, God, and Jesus himself in verse 15, he says that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine. That's really interesting. Because he's a killer. He's a Pharisee. But no, he, in the eyes of Jesus, is a chosen instrument. And church, we've got some work to do in this way. We see people as what they've done, not who God sees them to be. We all have that predisposition because of orientation or somebody's political view or whatever. We're just kind of defining people like, well, they're just this way. Their heart would never be open to Christ, and we, we just kind of cast people away. And Jesus says here, even in his brokenness and his blindness, that Saul is a chosen instrument. Correlating scripture is from 1 Samuel 16, where we learn that the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so God might be calling you into some hard work with, with people you love, with situations that are difficult. Be encouraged. The Lord looks at the heart, and we need to see the people that we interact with as chosen instruments. And then this final conversion scene, verses 18 and 19, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. They're not metaphorical, something theologians don't know what to make of it much, but he had literal blindness and that ended immediately. And he regained his sight, he got up, he was baptized, he took food, and he was strengthened. It's amazing here. Is anastomy, he, he got up, he, he anastomy, he, he arose, and then he was baptized and he took food, and he was strengthened. And it's interesting, I think for many of us, kind of the, it's out of order a little bit. If you look at the chronology there, verse 18 and 19, this, this is like what literally happened, that he, anastomy, he literally rose and was baptized, and then he took food, and then he was strengthened. And so often I meet with people that are like hungering for more of God in their life. Like, I want more transformation. I want more Jesus, less of me. I want more joy and less sin. I want more hope and less bitterness. I want more of this and less of the stuff that's kept me in prison. But we think, you know, once I'm strengthened, God, once you strengthen me, and then I'll take food, you know, I'll surround myself with more places of strength, and then there'll be pieces of my own transformation, and then I'll anastomy. And then I'll rise up. And then I'll be healthy and healed and be fully equipped, God, to enter the rest of your story. But with Saul's narrative here, the, the, the rising, the arising happened first before he'd even eaten, before he's even baptized, before he's even strengthened. And friends, I want to, I want to caution you for some of you that are like, man, I'm, I'm on the road to transformation, but it's just happening slow. And I keep being plagued with some of these old habits or old relationships or old, you know, God, God wants to, to encourage you this morning. The transformation takes time for many people, and it's a process. But keep hoping that God is working in you and through you. And, and for the people around us, when we're kind of judging people all the time, know that God might be working in their lives too. Richard shared a story when we were studying this week about a guy that he had done ministry with in a previous context, and, and the guy started reading the Bible, and he accepted Jesus. And that's great. He said, I want to talk about Jesus in my workplace. That's wonderful. And the guy worked at a porno shop. And so he started to, at the front counter of the, of the shop in which he sold magazines and all sorts of you know, nasty things, he was passing out Gospel of John tracts. So he was, you know, thank you for your business. And here, here's the truth of Jesus in the book of John. And, you know, for a couple of weeks, he was almost just like 
he was ignorant of the fact that, you know, this old life and his new life were coexisting. Of course, in time, he left the job. And of course, in time, we leave the old life behind. But for many of us, there is this process as the new life is rising in us and the old life wants to hang around. And the encouragement of Scripture is to keep encouraging people around us. Be encouraged. Be transformed and know that God isn't done with you yet. It's a process. Don't stop walking. Even if you feel like you're walking blindly into the city, know that God is calling you to more and more fullness of his life in you. And then we're going to skip ahead to the end of the chapter in this character of Aeneas. This is the second point of your outline. Aeneas, rise and make your bed. This is verses 32 to 35 of Acts 9. Now it's Peter. Peter we haven't seen now for a couple chapters. So Peter and Saul slash Paul are kind of our stars of Acts. Now it's back to Peter and the changing narrative of Luke's scripture that he wrote. Now as Peter is traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas who'd been bedridden eight years for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up, and all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned towards the Lord. This is really interesting. Peter, like the other disciples, was kind of posted up in Jerusalem, and it was Stephen's death. It was the persecution in Jerusalem that kind of dispersed them, and now he's heading west towards the coast, and he hears about a man stuck in bed. And he shows up. We don't know anything about Aeneas. We do know Peter, who's experienced the forgiveness of Christ. He experienced the power of Christ. Now as the church is growing, Peter's growing in his gifts, and he encounters this man. But even in his power, notice that Peter isn't quoting himself, but is quoting the power of Christ. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ is the one that our transformation comes from. And so often we get kind of stuck in these places where I'm like, oh, I want to do this, and I'm going to read my Bible more, and I want to do this, and I want to do that. I just would challenge you to do some thinking about who's the, who's the first noun in that sentence. Or are you asking, Jesus, make me more like you. Jesus, give me a hunger for your scripture. Jesus, allow me to spend time praying with you. And then Peter says, Aeneas, rise and make your bed. That's really, really amazing. This man was in bed for eight years, eight years. And somehow Peter doesn't even say, like, I know you're going to be anxious to get up and, like, get to the marketplace and see your friends, but take a moment. Because when people see the made bed, Aeneas, they will know that God moved. This is like Jesus in the book of John where Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath and he tells him, take up your mat and be healed. And the man is like walking around Jerusalem with his mat, which is a witness of the fact that he was stuck on this place, and now he's been freed from it, and actually ends up getting him in all sorts of trouble. Here back in Acts 9, Peter says, the the raising is important, and the testimony of what God did in your life will be shown through the made bed. Make your bed. When people will see what's happened in your life, they'll turn towards God. This is what it says. The people in Lydda, Lydda, and Sharon saw him, they turned to the Lord. Not even in the town they were in, in the surrounding town, when they saw the man, when they heard about the made bed, they turned towards the Lord. And this is phenomenal, but this is how transformation worked, that God has left us as his messengers. 
And nobody cares what church you go to. Nobody cares about what your pastor said. They care how you live. And when they see you, and they see Christ moving in you, and they see you making your bed, when they see you leaving places that were enslaved, and now they're transformed, they'll see the made bed, and they'll know that God is powerful. And I'm not talking about Acts anymore. I'm talking about your own story. We're called to be people of transformation, and that our life is witness. Your transformation is the witness I don't care if you go outside Safeco Field with a bullhorn and track. I'm more concerned that you can testify that God's power is showing up in your heart and your relationships. And that means in the raising of your kids or the living with your roommates and your family of origin. You're just, hey, I'm not a perfect person, but God is showing up. And when, when people see the made bed of my life, when they see that God is changing me, they'll bear witness to the power of God. I think that's pretty cool because in really simple ways, our life then can preach. And brain researchers show that when you get really distracted, sometimes it's like, you know, you're trying to solve this huge problem and brain researchers show, just go and, go and do some dishes or go and wash your car. Like sometimes like literally to get past a big ma- a brain block, you need to like distract yourself with common everyday occurrences. I think that's helpful because for many of us, we want to do these grand things with our life. And Peter's saying the witness here isn't anything the man says. It's just simply the small act of obedience of making the bed, wash the car, or pay the bills, or mow the yard. Ask anyone that's married. More times than not, it's not the fancy dinner once a year for an anniversary. It's the small acts of obedience. You say, I love you so much, I'm going to serve you in really small and practical ways. And I'll learn more about being a witness at your workplace. It's less about the megaphone. It's more about small acts of relationship. And this is what Peter says to Aeneas. Rise and make your bed. It's really, really beautiful. Like, it's done. Aeneas, your time of enslavement, your time of imprisonment, it's over. Be done with that. And there's this really strong piece, and I'm encouraging you to be finding yourself, anchoring yourself in the text this morning. For some of us, it's like, man, I, you know, it's time to move. me in my apathy, and it's to me. It's time to move and, and leave that behind and have new faith in Christ. In, in addiction, and it's to me. It's time to leave that life behind. In my loneliness, and it's to me. It's time to move. In my bitterness and the things that have been plaguing me in my relationship, it's time to move. God is calling each and every one of us to arise and make our bed. And a couple weeks ago, I told the story of uh, our friend Lindsay, uh, who now does janitorial work at the junction and also at, uh, at the Green Lake location. And Lindsay, uh, we met through the methadone clinic from the very first day. There's a video on the church's Facebook page, very powerful. He didn't think he'd be allowed into the coffee shop at first because uh, he was on methadone. He was a junkie, all sorts of, of parallels to kind of modern day um, lepers. For a lot of junkies, they just don't feel like they can go anywhere and get a a relationship or a place to be seen as a whole human. And Lindsay tells a story when he was, he was homeless and living in really horrible places and had had some really huge struggles, but to what really helped him become not an addict anymore to be in recovery is that he started going to the shelter every night and he would get up in the morning and he would take just a minute and he would make his bed. 
Like literally, he said this. He said, you know, when I would make my bed at the end of every night in the shelter, I knew that my life was capable of more. More than just the life of a junkie. More than being slave to a needle. More than being paralyzed. And some of us this morning are like, you know, I, I'm just not paralyzed. It's kind of hard to get there, Scott. But, you know, the reality is the paralysis is real. It's real in our faiths. It's real in our relationships. It's, it's real in our marriages. It's real in our singleness. And, and God wants to be moving us from places of paralysis to places of faith. Get up and make your bed. And when people see the change that's happening in you through the made bed, they'll bear witness that God is powerful in the world. And then the final character we see here in the third point of our outline is this, this woman, Tabitha, Dorcas is her Greek name. Tabitha, rise, your small things matter. This is verses 36 through 42. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translating Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And happened at that time, she fell sick and she died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring, do not delay in coming. So Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them out, and he knelt down and prayed. Returning to the body, said, Tabitha, Anastomy, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints in the windows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. The point of the transformation is always for God's glory and not our own desires. And so Tabitha becomes this really powerful witness in really simple ways. This is a picture we have of Tabitha. This was a painting. And it's interesting, the title of this painting is entitled Discipleship. And I love that because we maybe think discipleship is a bunch of Bible reading or leading groups or doing a bunch of things. But for Tabitha, she modeled her faith in Christ in really small, simple, practical ways. She made things for people. She did acts of kindness from the depth of her own heart. She participated in transformation, and she doesn't say anything. She just does the small things every single day that God puts in front of her. She's a caretaker. She abounds in deeds of kindness. And it's interesting where it's like in verse 39, Peter rose. They think Tabitha was a widow. There's this community of widows. Women have tremendous power throughout the New Testament to show the power of God. And then the, the, the other widows, they stood beside Peter. They're weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make. They're like, this woman was incredible, and she's laid out dead, and they're showing him the, like, the, the crochet work. It, it all seems almost silly. Like, what? They're like, not talking about all this crazy, important stuff she didn't know. She just sewed all this stuff. But she was so kind and so loving, and she's, they're showing the, the tunics. And it's incredible, because every one of us in the room, we want to be extraordinary, right? That's part of just being human. We don't just want to live. We want to be great. We want the promotion. We want the opportunities. We want to do extraordinary things, and sometimes for really good reasons, but the power of Tabitha and really Aeneas before her shows that ordinary people are extraordinary to God. 
Ordinary people are extraordinary to God. The heroes of today's text are these Dorcas and Aeneas. They, they are the church. They don't do anything overly crazy. They just do the small, simple things that God puts right in front of them. And maybe God is telling you this morning, like Tabitha, it's okay to be ordinary. It's okay to be ordinary and testify with the small, simple acts of obedience. This is really helpful for people that are stay-at-home moms or dads that are raising kids. And you're like, man, you asked me to put myself in the story. I'm, I'm Tabitha laid out dead. you like, because I'm just like serving and I'm cooking and I, I got no life in me. And the power of Tabitha is this small, simple witness. We can change the world by simple faithfulness to the relationships God puts us in right now. As an illustration of that, there was this Sunday school teacher by the name of Henrietta Mears at a First Presbyterian Church in Hollywood, California. She just was a Bible teacher in the Sunday school. She uh, just served kids. And those of you that serve our kids here, there's almost 200 kids every Sunday, want to say thank you. We can't do church without your acts of service. And you know it looks like Tabitha. It looks like small, simple acts of obedience. And so this Henrietta Mears, she just showed up every day and loved the kids that God brought away. And then God brought her a kid, a little boy named Billy. And she loved Billy and told Billy about Jesus. And his last name was Graham. And Billy Graham went on to do a few good things for God down the road. And Henrietta Mears later met a little guy named Jimmy. And she loved Jimmy and just taught him every day about following Jesus. Jimmy's last name was Rayburn, and he started a little organization called Young Life, now leading people around the world to Christ. And Bill Bright, who started Campus Crusade, and Dawson Trotman, who started Navigators, and former Senate chaplain Richard Halverson, all of these people spent time in Henrietta Mears' Sunday school room. She probably didn't think she was changing the world. She probably just thought she was teaching kids on a Sunday morning about Jesus. And one of her little boys was a little guy named Dale. And she gave a power for scripture that stayed with him the rest of his life. And I had the great opportunity later on at Whitworth to study under him, Dale Bruner, who's now written phenomenal commentaries and taught Bible teachers around the world more about the power of scripture. Henrietta Mears, she said this about small, simple obedience. She said, it's just wonderful to think that what we speak and do are translated some way in the most mystical and marvelous way to other individuals, and they in turn spread out and out and out until the circle is so immense that we haven't any idea. Do you get it this morning? Ordinary is often extraordinary to God. And we can waste a lot of our time trying to make ourselves extraordinary. And God is saying in the witness of Tabitha, just know small, simple steps of obedience today. That's what it's all about. There's two key takeaways I want to leave with before we pray and conclude. And first is this. And in Acts 9, if you notice, nobody rises alone. None of them. Paul doesn't make him his way into the city alone. Ananias doesn't go without the encouragement of the Spirit. Aeneas doesn't get out of bed alone, nor Tabitha. Everyone is transformed, and somebody else is in close proximity We don't rise alone. And so we are, as humans, we are interdependent with one another. And so if you're a person this morning, like, man, I feel more laid out than someone that's laying hands on, then be laid out. 
but ask someone around you for a hand up so I could use some encouragement. I'm struggling with a place of the Bible that feels relevant. Will you pray with me? I mean, it's so easy to come on a Sunday. How are you doing? Fine. I said it before, it breaks my heart. If we're anything but authentic here, it's the one place we're supposed to be authentic. We don't have to be fine. We can be real. We don't rise alone. And the secondly thing is that in the, in the Acts 9 narrative, there's the power of God, and there is a response. Every one, God does something amazing through intervention, and then they also rise up. And so nobody gets there alone, but nobody rises without personal initiative. Like God is calling us to be people not ceaselessly striving to earn his, his care and his concern, but to be stepping further in a transformation story and to be making our bed so our life will testify of witness. Henrietta Mir said this, she said, it's hard to motivate a parked car, so get moving. In other words, it's time to make your beds. It's time to do some thinking and praying about the places that God is shaping you and changing you. And the power is his. It's not your own. You don't need to try harder. But you can receive God's power and step more fully into the saving relationship with him at your heart. And so I ask you this morning, I mean, who are you? Are you Paul and his, his blindness as he kind of heads into the city? Are you feeling really uncertain with what God is doing next? You just need to be encouraged. Are you Ananias, like this disciple that's doing good work, but you just need courage to keep being a person of reconciliation and hope and love? Are you Aeneas, and God just wants to move you from places of death to life and telling you, change, like change, and then get up and make your bed so that your life change will bear witness to God's power, not your own? Are you Tabitha? And you just need to be encouraged. Your small little pieces of discipleship and faithfulness mean a great deal to your Father God. The Lord wants to encourage you this morning, and he wants to challenge you this morning. So the Acts 9 is more than history. It's part of your story, too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for moments to open your scriptures and to continue to remind us of your great power and love in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would be obedient, and that we would find ourselves in the scripture, and that in the midst of, of these scriptures, Lord, you'd be giving us next steps and next pieces places of hopefulness and places where, Lord, you want to change us, quite frankly. You want us to be rising to new life. Annas to me, get off, you're telling us. And so, Father, as we continue in worship this morning, we pray for both that wisdom to discern where you're really kind of exposing things and then the courage to listen. In your great name we pray, amen. Today is, is uh, Communion Sunday. I'd like to ask our communion servers to report to their stations. We also have some prayer team members that would love to pray with you. I believe prayer team people will be down front on the side. We also have some prayer journals back there if you just want to write out something that God is laying on your heart. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the, the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken. Eat from it, all of you. And then he lifted the cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for what? For forgiveness. Drink and receive. And at Bethany, this table isn't a Bethany thing. It's just people that want to believe in Jesus thing. And scripture tells us before we come to this table, we get our hearts right with God. And so we take a moment, Lord, make me right before you. Lord, I want to rise. I want to change. 
I want to leave this whole life behind. And may the transformation of my life, Lord, in time be witness. Let me pray over these elements now. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. And Jesus, thank you for giving your life up for us. You died for us to experience life. And then you receive life yourself. And Lord, Scripture tells us that you wait for us still, where we'll be with you forever. But in the meantime, Lord, we're people of the meantime, that you long to live in us each and every day to give our relationships purpose and to help transform us. Raise us up, Lord, to new life from you. In your great name we pray, amen.